Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the second guessing edition of Slate Money, your weekly guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion in New York, and on the show this week, new information about the decision to let Lehman Brothers fail back in 2008, uh, the protests in Hong Kong, and former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers on the dysfunctional relationship between Treasury and the Federal Reserve. And we're rejoined by Kathy O'Neill, our newest listener. She was a, merely a listener last week. Um, this week, she's back in the chair where she belongs. Data scientist, blogger at mathbabe.org, and... I have to quote listener Polly Powledge here. She wrote to us this week to say that Kathy is, quote, a wonderful lodestar of awesome female nerdiness, which, yes, of course. Um, Kathy, as our most recent newest and most valued listener, you have a complaint or a comment about last week's episode. Thank you, Felix, and I appreciate you asking. I, I really did enjoy last week um, for the most part, but there's this one phrase that I heard used more than once called opening the It kimono. was used once. I think, no, more than once. I, I, I think I said it first. It was repeated at least twice. It, it, so here, here's the thing. It's a terrible phrase. It's sexist, whatever. I have it a is. phrase to replace it with, and I'm on okay, the okay, mission. Okay, so wait, wait. The phrase we are banning is... Open the kimono. The f- phrase we are replacing it with is... Put a ruler to the dick. You got that, Jordan? I'm I'm going to use it. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. As penance, I'm going to use it. Okay. At it's... least once in this episode, Jordan. Put well, let's... Well, that might, that might be tough. I'm reaching... I Maybe I've got it. <laughs> so, um, anyway, this, in case you hadn't worked this one out, is, as ever, Slate's very own Moneybox columnist, Jordan Weisman, whose task this episode is to try to avoid using put a ruler to the dick. Um, I don't think I'm going to have to try that hard, but uh, we'll see. In any case, the first topic is um, Lehman Brothers. Kathy, tell us what's going on here. 
As everyone knows, in um, late summer 2008, Lehman Brothers was allowed to fail. And the question now this week has come up um, whether it really needed to fail or not. So um, Timmy Geithner in his book and, and all sorts of other interviews and stuff has defended this move um, and said that they did not have the legal ability to save Lehman Brothers like they had saved Bear Stearns. Tim Geithner was the president of the New York Fed he at was. the time. Uh, the Federal Reserve chairman at the time, Ben Bernanke, has also repeated this many times. Yes, he has. And I believe that even the Treasury Secretary, Hank Paulson, has used this line of argument. Yes, he has. So, so how, are they all wrong? Well, you know... It, it really depends on how you think about it. Um, what we found out this week is that Fed, New York Fed insiders didn't think that there was a legal impediment to saving, um, to saving Lehman. They thought that Lehman was sort of on the cusp of being insolvent and that they, um, as far as they knew, they had the same legal ability to save Lehman as they had had to save Bear Stearns and that they were going to have to save AIG, which they did right after Lehman fell. So they just said, and they also said there, was, there were lawyers joined at the hip um, all the time, and the lawyers never said, no, they couldn't do it. So the question is, you know, you know, why did that kind of reasoning coming from the New York Fed, didn't, why didn't it get to um, Timmy Geithner, who was the president of the New York Fed at the time? Yeah, so that's what's especially worrisome about this report, which is that this, these findings by the Fed staff never made it all the way to the top that Tim Geithner was never told, yes, we might have the legal authority to do this. And it, it's not made especially clear why. Um, well, I can tell you why, because it was completely chaotic. And it, and it actually is made quite clear. And by the way, the report we're talking about is a big piece by Peter Evis and James Stewart in the New York Times, which you can find. Um, what is clear is that they had pretty much given up, Tim Geithner and Ben Bernanke and Hank Paulson pretty much given up on Lehman Brothers and moved on to AIG. And they realized that AIG was this enormous problem. And they were so preoccupied with AIG that they just never had the time to sit down with the lawyers who had their own legal reasoning. And by the way, this is completely connected to the question of whether or not Lehman Brothers was solvent. The entire argument here is... For, you know, which we've heard time and time again from the top brass, is that the Fed had no legal authority to bail out an insolvent bank. That if you're going to be doing your rescue loans, you need to do them against high-quality collateral, and so the institution needs to be solvent. So let's go there for a second about the solvency, because so many things, so many questions around the solvency revolve around the question of who is Timmy Geithner and Ben Bernanke listening to in terms of whether it's solvent. Wall Street didn't think it, that Lehman Brothers was solvent, but um, according to the credit default swaps that you were seeing like the weekend before. By the way, I should say that I worked at D.E. Shaw at the time that Lehman fell, and D.E. Shaw was 20% owned by Lehman Brothers. So we spent the, the week before the fall crowded around the Bloomberg terminal looking at the credit default swap prices for Lehman Brothers. And so there was a sort of generally understood um, perception on Wall Street that Lehman Brothers was in deep, deep trouble. Um, but that was kind of assuming that it was privately, you know, it was not government take, there was no government takeover. So, so, the, so yeah, the, the question about solvency, solvency is always in the eye of the beholder. There's no sort of platonic answer to the question, is it solvent or not? It's not one of these binary things which comes down either yes or no. Because pretty much any bank on planet Earth at any point in time, if 
they had to liquidate all of their assets tomorrow in a fire sale would be insolvent. Exactly. Insolvency is simply the value of your assets minus the va- asset value of your liabilities. Everyone knew what Lehman's liabilities were. The question is what was the value of their assets? And what the New York Fed stuff is now telling the New York Times is that they were saying you can't just mark these things to market in the middle of a crisis and say that's the value of the assets, therefore they're insolvent. The whole point of a bailout is that we put in some money, we allow it to get through the crisis, come out the other side, and then they'll be worth more, which with hindsight was true. Right. I think the real question here is what was actually going on in their heads when Lehman fell? I mean, so there's the the real question is, did they want to sort of set an example by letting Lehman fall and making banks more accountable to the the realities of the market, which is what was perceived at the time that like that Hank Paulson was like, for, you know what, let him, fa- about, let him fail. For a period of about three or four days, people were really applauding this decision. Yeah. And Hank Paulson was a certain was a hero to a certain type of market commentator who disapproved of the Bear Stearns bailout and said, good, uh, you know, under capitalism, a badly managed company should fail. And it was only when the full repercussions of Lehman's failure became obvious that suddenly you started hearing this argument about, oh, well, we weren't legally allowed to exactly. do it. Exactly. That's my point. So I, I have another question. Um, one of the Point, or one of the things that the New York Times article sort of suggests but doesn't really dive into is that what happened with this report and whether the question of whether or not Lehman was actually solvent has big implications for the future of the financial system. It's not just about apportioning blame. It's about what happens next time we have a crisis. And I can't say I fully understand why that's the case. I'm curious what you guys think, what, how this impacts the debate about the tomorrow, not just what happened in the past. Because in the, in the future, all... all major systemic crises are basically financial crises, which means you're going to have a financial institution which is in trouble. And the Fed, ultimately, is always going to come back to the Fed, is going to have to make the decision, do we bail out this financial institution or not? And then the question then arises, what legal ability does the Fed have to do that? And do they need to do some kind of mark-to-market exercise in order to determine solvency before they can decide whether or not to bail out the institution. Another thing that that has to be decided based on this this story is whether the communication at the New York Fed needs to be improved. The mm-hmm. fact that we had a report for the underlings of Jimmy Geithner saying we don't see a legal obstacle and then he didn't actually hear the the results of that report. That's I mean that goes back to the Carmen Cigara um, secret tapes which I didn't manage to talk about since I wasn't here last week, but it's just a question of the culture of the Fed why the the communication is so bad among the people who need to make decisions. Uh, so it, and, and, mm-hmm. and obviously the communication gets much worse in the you know, case of a crazy crisis weekend where no one has had any sleep and you're bailing out not only Lehman but also AIG and you're mainly concentrating on trying to find a private buyer for Lehman in the form of probably Barclays and then suddenly the UK Treasury comes in and says, no, we're not going to allow this to happen. There are so many moving parts. There's so much chaos that I think it is um, a little bit dangerous to start talking about, well, you know, the smooth lines of communication weren't working perfectly. Well, of course they weren't. In any case, talking about smooth lines of communication, we're going to smoothly move on, (laughs) Jordan, to what is going on in Hong Kong? 
So we've all seen the images of protesters covered in tear, tear gas and brandishing umbrellas. It's now known as the uh, one of the names for it is the Umbrella Revolution. Um, Hong Kongers have taken to the streets to protest what they see as the infringement of their democratic rights. Um, and just a tiny bit of background for anyone who hasn't been following this too carefully. Um, when Hong Kong became went, was uh, given back to China by the British, um, part of the deal was that come 2017, they were going to get to elect their chief executive. They were going to just have a, the full rights to elect essentially the mayor, the guy who runs their city. Um, China seems to be kind of reneging on that promise, not fully, but instead of getting to pick their slate of candidates, uh, China is essentially saying the Communist Party is going to have a committee and we're going to tell you the people that you can choose to vote from. Um, Hong Kong, which has a very, very robust tradition of protest, um, we're talking about a place that has an annual vigil for Tiananmen Square, um, have take, uh, as a result, there have been these protests in the streets. It started with students. There was a crackdown. Adults joined. What's interesting, since we are a money podcast, is that there seems to be this split. Um, there's a split between the student protesters and their allies and sort of the conservative Hong Kong business establishment who is not so happy to see these people taking action in the street. And so I kind of think I think we all want to talk about and I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on why it is that there is this split in Hong Kong. Why is it that the businessmen are not interested in having more democratic rights than, it, than what China is apparently, apparently willing to give them? So I, I, I got interested in this. I mean, it's an interesting thing because I'm an occupier. And, I, and the first comment I want to make is like, it just made me, you know, they're criticizing the, the vetting of their political candidates. And it made me wonder, to what extent are our political candidates also vetted? Um, it won't be by Beijing in our case, but it might be by like financial lobbyists to some extent. But anyway, so that's one issue that I'd like to throw up. But, but since it's a money podcast, I also was interested to see that there were some hedge funds, uh, hedge fund workers and bankers who are like pro the occupiers. And their case was they like transparency of markets. They don't like the, um, the Chinese government sort of manipulating stuff going on in Hong Kong politically, which, which translates into a murkiness on the market. They want transparency. Um, and then the other side seems to the, the people, the other bankers who are not so into the protest seem to say, well, we need stability. So there's this kind of like medium term stability question versus the longer term transparency of markets question. And it seems to me that it's not even stability that they're... I mean, yes, they want stability, but Hong Kong is a very sort of incestuous place in terms of the very rich men who control it. There aren't a huge amount of them, and most of their wealth comes from real estate. And this has been mirrored in China as well. The, the, you know, the new class of Chinese gazillionaires is in large part has in large part made their money in property. And in that kind of a world where political connections become incredibly important, um, the way that you maintain your wealth and continue to grow your wealth is by, you know, being in there with the Chinese Communist Party and making sure that they like you and you like them. And any time that, that, that the party turns against you, all of your wealth can get stripped, not only from yourself, but from all of your family. So... It's very natural for the entrenched money interests in Hong Kong to want to have very little change because that's how they made their money. But for everyone else, anyone who might want to become rich in the future, they have 
less interest in that. And so I suspect that what you'll find is that the bankers and the hedge funders who are supporting the protests, and I think they are a minority, are going to be the ones who haven't quite made it yet and who want a more level playing field. Yeah, to kind of follow on your point, I I saw that The Economist had recently come out with a um, kind of crony capitalism index, and Hong Kong actually ranked higher than Russia on it. So I guess that that speaks to this this issue of the fact that connections now play such a role. And so that gives the business interests there a a deep incentive not to rock the boat, not to join the protesters. Another aspect of this I think is interesting is just how much of the protest seems to have been fueled by worries about inequality, Um, that it's it it is similar to the rhetoric or the, the issues that fueled Occupy here in the United States. It's young students who are who can't buy a house, who don't see a, a place for themselves in Hong Kong of today or tomorrow, um, that they feel shut out. And the, then you layer on this issue of democracy, which means that you really don't have any sort of outlet to deal with it. Um, so so, so the, the issue of democracy is a fascinating one, because if you look at recent history, we've had absolutely astonishing economic growth and wealth creation in China, which has no democracy. And we've had really pathetic recessions and slumps in Europe, which is very highly democratic, and the U.S. isn't doing that great. Um, And in general, it seems that democracy isn't doing so well in terms of economic growth, while autocracy is doing quite well. And one of the ways you could maybe frame these protests is that Hong Kong is wealthy enough. Hong Kong is a very rich city. And that Hong Kong is wealthy enough to say, we actually value democracy more than we value economic growth and money in a certain sense. Yeah. Well, uh, can I th- push in there? I mean, I, 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 I don't agree with that. I think what's really going on here is you have people with high expectations that don't see how they could possibly win in this system. You have these well-educated students who are saying, we can't afford a place to live because those, the prices for, for apartments are so ridiculous. And, um, and it's, it's a stacked against us system, and it always has been. But now there's even more people vying for power coming from Beijing, and it's going to be even harder for us who, you know, normal people to not to break in. And yes, I agree with you. Um, I don't usually make this distinction very strongly, but here I'll make the distinction between hedge fund quants or hedge funders and bankers. Typically, banks have connections to people like Timothy Geithner or whoever that person is in that country. Hedge fund um, people typically, um, they think of themselves as entrepreneurial. They they don't expect to be bailed out. They they want transparency because they're going to work on the system from the outside. And if they, it, since they don't have the connections to sort of to know how the interest rates are going to go, they're just going to have to live on their wits. And, and, and historically, it has to be said, Hong Kong has not been a hedge fundy kind of place. It has been entrepreneurial, but it's been these big taipans. It's been um, big. It's been big traders. It's been people with connections, and it has been very undemocratic for you know centuries of british rule there was no democracy for the since 1997 there's been basically no democracy and the chinese promised democracy come 2017 and it looks like they're not going to offer it that hong kong is going to continue the way it always has done without democracy which is maybe one of the reasons you don't see many hedge funders in hong kong Maybe. I'm, but to, to the extent that you see complaints, it is coming from people who aren't inside the system and think that democracy, with its myth of meritocracy attached to it, will, will allow them to, to break in. And I think that's what you're seeing with that Occupy protest. 
And on the subject of quants and hedge funders and technocrats, we are going to move on to one of my favorite subjects, which is Larry Summers. Larry. Larry. Now, now, Kathy has first-hand experience of working with Larry Summers. I have first-hand experience of talking to Larry Summers. Um, you don't forget co contact with Larry. He's, he's the most Larry person in the world. He was the Obama administration's chief economic advisor for, for most of the Obama administration. And he recently came out with a paper, he and a few co-authors. And I'm going to try and sum up this paper as simply as I can, but it's a, bit, it's a bit complicated, so bear with me. What you have in this country is a tension between fiscal policy and monetary policy. Fiscal policy is how much you tax and spend and what you do with the government money. Monetary policy is the Federal Reserve and where it sets interest rates. And the Federal Reserve has for a long time been complaining that they have had to be more aggressive in terms of loosening monetary policy and trying to boost the economy through interest rates because the government doesn't help them because the government has been going on sequesters and, and, and you know, expenditure cuts and that kind of thing, which just doesn't help expand the economy. And what Larry Summers came out with and said in this paper is that there was another way in which the government wasn't helping and which fiscal policy was actually hindering monetary policy and making things worse. And that was to do with the term of its borrowings. Obviously, the government has to borrow. It has a big deficit. And the question is, when you borrow, do you borrow for 30 days or 60 days or a year or two? Or, on the other hand, do you borrow at 10 years, 20 years, 30 years? And what the government did was it decided to term out its borrowings. It saw that long-term interest rates were very low. And so it started issuing a lot of 30-year debt, long-dated bonds because they thought, hey, we get to lock in interest rates at a very low rate. And what Larry is saying, and remember that he was a large part of the policy team who decided that this was a good idea. He's now seemingly changed his mind. What Larry is saying is that, well, actually, that didn't help because the point of monetary policy was to bring those long-term interest rates down. And if you wind up issuing a whole bunch of debt at long-term interest rates, that brings those long-term interest rates up. And the, the, what the Fed did was it brought down long-term interest rates by about two and a half percentage points. But then what the Treasury do, did was it brought up long-term interest rates by about half a percentage point. And if they hadn't done this terming out, we could have had long-term interest rates which were half a percentage point lower and boosted the economy much more. And really, the government was shooting itself in the foot. Okay, I, so, I'm going to interrupt and I'm going to dumb down what you just said into two points. Okay. okay. <laughs> so the first point, which I, I, is one of my favorite points to make to people who, who talk about monetary fiscal policy is, our Congress refuses to help boost the economy, so the Fed had to do something. Or I don't know sure they had to do something, but they decided to do something. And what they decided to do was like be really, really, really nice to banks um, so that hopefully banks would lend money. Okay, so that's the first dumb point which you made. The second point is I just want to explain to listeners why these long-term interest rates matter um, or why they think they matter. So lots of people have to have to put their money somewhere. They have to invest in something. And the idea, I believe, as I understand this argument from Larry Summers, at least this argument from Larry Summers, because he changes his mind a lot, is that when the Fed bought a bunch of long 30-year treasuries, let's just pretend they're all 30 years, um, 
the Fed bought them to make them more expensive so that the investors would be like, oh, man, those are so expensive that I'm not going to buy them anymore because they're just too expensive. So instead, I'm going to invest in other kinds of debt. And that other kind of debt maybe would be like for businesses and businesses would be like, oh, man, there's like a competition for my kind of debt. And that means that I can borrow at better rates. So it's sort of the model here is that there's a bunch of business people that would expand their business if only they could borrow at slightly better rates. However, if you actually look at what businesses care about the most, um, it's not lending rates. It's like things like, let's see, um, they they care about uncertainty about the the future. They care about like recessions and stuff. They care about taxes. They care about healthcare costs. And then fourth, their fourth thing is lending sure, rates. Sure, but I think what you're doing here, Kathy, is you're starting a whole debate about monetary policy and whether QE yeah. is worth it and stuff. This is a narrow argument that... It, that the Larry is making. He's not trying to... You know, we're basically assuming that if the economy is in trouble, the correct monetary policy response is to lower interest rates. We can argue about that, but if that's the correct policy response, then surely it behooves the Treasury to work with the Fed. And remember, this has nothing to do with Congress. The debt management aspect of Treasury is not run by Congress, it's just run by Treasury. And they could have just continued to borrow short instead of borrowing long. Yeah, so I think there's, I, I kind of want to dumb this down even further uh, for a second. I mean, really, in the end, I, I, this isn't so much an interesting story, I think, because we want to, oh, did we use the absolute best you know, monetary policy given the moment? It's, are, are the Treasury and Fed working together in any kind of a rational way whatsoever? And Larry Summers is saying, no, even when I was around, they probably weren't. Um, but the other reason it's funny is just because this is kind of peak Larry Summers. This, just this idea that it's Larry Summers arguing with a young, a slightly younger Larry Summers is just like one of the like most archetypal and just Washington things you could possibly have. And so it, it, everyone who's heard the story is just like that. that's sort of the headline for everybody that makes it so amusing. I do think as far as the, the macroeconomic argument goes, um, one point that some of the Fed officials have made sticks out to me, which is – I mean, for for years, ten-year Treasury rates were essentially negative when you took when you took inflation into account. Um, you know, would pressing them down a little bit more actually have boosted the economy a lot? But now, more? now you're going yeah, back to that, what Kathy's that, no, saying. That's the only thing. I, I, I think it's sort of like a maybe we don't know, but in the end, it is. Re- but this issue of whether or not the two are actually. You know, if we have a functioning <laughs> relationship there, that is important, and it's something that probably we need to consider. And it's future. actually, Felix, it's actually what Larry is saying. I, I mean, that's what Larry is saying in his paper that we have missed all this economic growth because of this disagreement. Right, and you, we are, and then you can you can start having an argument about whether monetary policy works, but his paper doesn't actually. It quest- assumes it. Yeah, it does. It, assume it, it. it assumes. Yeah. That. I'm just ask, questioning that assumption because right. that's what I do. But that's not the interest. That's not the bit which Larry is disagreeing with him. With that's true. About. That's true. He is that, and it is interesting that we have somebody who's like famous and as like honored by some people as Larry Summers, literally swapping sides over the, the three years. Well, you know, I. I, I and it's just not it's not just his policy. It's, it, it, he actually made arguments for buying long term treasuries and he wrote stories and was like published. One of the reasons I, I think Larry Summers is so interesting is because he's sort of a, a demonstration of the limits of genius. Um, he's sort of, you know, one of those bright young or he was one of those bright young men. Now he's a bright middle aged older man. But you know, the one thing everyone always says about him is just he's a powerful brain that he can just like take any concept and argue it from 
any which different angle question the assumptions, you know, just tear your idea apart and then restate it to you in a smarter way. Um, but does that mean the genius always comes up with the right judgment? Even he would say no, maybe. And he's doing it to himself, so I almost yeah. feel better. Although he is kind of hedged. He said, well, I had some concerns at the time, but I didn't necessarily bring – I mean, he's, he's pulled a kind of a classic. Oh, that's too bad. I he's, wish he had just been like, I'm on the other side of the debate because – yeah. sort of, but it, it's fairly clear that, that his, his His argument is that, well, when I said we should borrow long term, I didn't mean we should borrow long term. What I meant was it makes sense at the very least to borrow long term. I just didn't continue the argument and say, well, if it makes sense to borrow long term, we should probably borrow short term. Anyway, enough of Larry. I, you know, we, we can only have a certain amount of Larry per episode, and I think we have exceeded our quota. Jordan, what is your number this week? My number is negative one cent. Um, that is how much our average hourly wages changed in September. Um, there's been this ongoing debate about whether – weird, weird debate about whether or not uh, American workers' salaries, wages, earnings are rising way too high um, and that if it's going to spark inflation. And it's just – yet again, there's absolutely no evidence of it. So every time you hear someone worrying about inflation over the next couple months, just remember that number. Negative one cent. That was the change in your typical worker salary recently or wages recently. Well, I'll, I'll come in and say 5.9, which was the headline number from this week's job report. Um, that's the inflation rate. It's 5 point, sorry, not the inflation rate. That's the unemployment rate. It's 5.9%. This is a very happy number. And I think for all that we can quibble about, well, the labor participation rate is very low and there are lots more people who have, don't have jobs or who have too little jobs and there's underemployment and all of these there's a million different quibbles and there's a lot of reason why you know the economy is not doing particularly well and it's and so on and so forth but 5.9 percent is a really good number and it's worth just stopping for a minute and saying yay it is it's the first time in six years we've been below six percent which is great but i will say again every time we talk about the unemployment rate the reason it matters is because is is because what or the question that matters is what's the fed going to do in response are they going to raise interest rates well no that's things? actually not the truth i think the, the policy from a policy angle it is the, the, well from a policy angle obviously the, from yeah. the, the the policy angle is what does the fed do yeah and the fed has make it made it clear that looking at much more than just the unemployment rate, the headline unemployment rate. But what I'm saying is there's more than a policy angle here. There's a, there are fewer unemployed people well, in America <laughs> yeah, angle here, and that's a good thing. That is a good thing. It is a good thing. Yeah. I'm not, we I'll, won't disagree. I'll that. prevent myself from quibbling. My number, because I want to get to my number, which What's is... What's your number, Kathy? You always have the best number. number. It's a thank you. 47,100. That's a good number. That's the number of dollars that was gained by some guy who um, traded on Herbalife with insider information, so-called inside information. Oh, th this is this is a great story. I yes. love this story. So, so Ackman, re remind us, what's your number one more time? $47,100. $47,100 of profit trading Herbalife. Now, yes. what did he do? And well, was see, it legal? It, it, it was, well, the SEC thinks it's not legal. And this is what they're doing instead of actual things, by the way. <laughs> that was kind of my overall point, which I just threw out there. Um, so this guy worked with Ackman. Um, Bill Ackman, Bill, the famous billionaire hedge fund manager. Who who cries about Herbalife yeah. regularly. Um, Which episode did we talk about? Him oh, my again? God. I love that episode. Yeah. Um, oh, my God. Can we throw in put a ruler to the dick somewhere here? Uh, <laughs> I'm going to try. That is sort of what he was trying to do with, with yes. uh, yeah. Herbalife was. Sweet. So anyway, he was 
so some guy was working with Ackman and figured out that he was going to go short Herbalife and told his roommate, and he told his roommate not to tell anyone, and his roommate <laughs> told someone, and that person put an option and and made $47,100 on it. And they're going to try to get the roommate and that guy who made the money. I mean, the roommate didn't make any money off the deal, but he's getting in trouble with the SEC, and so is the guy who did the put option. And, and they're saying that this is insider information, even though absolutely none of them had any information whatsoever from inside Herbalife. That's right. So it's a really weird situation. And nobody was, you know, nobody even worked near any of the people in question. Um, and again, that's what the SEC is doing, because that that's what they my do. my proposal on Twitter was that the SEC should ban all of its employees from any insider trading in investigations for a month just to and see what just, happen and just see what actual real fraud and crazy bad evil behavior goes on on Wall Street if you stop chasing these really stupid things thank you that's exactly what i'd like to see in any case that's the end of slate money for this week people thank you thank you very much for listening if you liked the show please subscribe in the iTunes store and leave us a review to help spread the word and do please keep writing to, to us with your comments and complaints and requests. Slate money at slate.com. We got some good ones this week, which we didn't get to. But it is possible that in the next week or two, we might actually start for the first time getting into the question of personal finance. I'm not sure if this is a good thing or not, but we might just do it. We had some requests. In any case, keep on writing to us. Let us know whether you want that or not. And do subscribe. The producers for Slate Money are Trace, Tracy Samuelson and Stan Alcorn. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. For Kathy O'Neill and Jordan Wiseman, I'm Felix Salmon. Until next week. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.